0: Know, God, that it is dangerous. It is dangerous to all in us that clings to this world, all that is in us that strays far from you as it cauterizes those pieces that are dead and unholy so that we can live more fully and alive to you. We pray that we would be sensitive to your word, that we would be yielding to your word. And I pray for myself to speak only what you would have me say in truth in christ's name we pray amen. We talked a, a bit about trials last week i I think in some ways, maybe one of the biggest trials i I ever faced in my life was a was a culmination of events uh after I became a christian. Uh, some of you know a little bit about my story i I grew up in a a large uh, with a so called uh, a mainline denomination. And uh, I attended I church three out of four Sundays a week. We were, you know, I guess a you know, passing with C's type family. Uh, I, I knew most of the, the basic Bible stories. I could tell you about Adam and Eve, and I could tell you about Moses and the, uh, the Israelites, and, and the, the Ten Commandments, and the, the plagues on Israel, and I could tell you about Noah and the archie and i and i could i, I could tell you the stories I didn't really know what any of them added up to and I, at a relatively young age younger than i probably should have been i can remember thinking about what all of this stuff meant and trying to concoct answers of my my own not having received them from my church um, at different points and different times, I thought maybe maybe all of the world's religions uh, essentially taught the same thing. I, I was 12 or 13. I didn't know what the other religions the world taught, so I was really just making this stuff up. But um, yeah, maybe maybe they're all the same thing. Yeah, you know, like Jesus is kind of like Muhammad, right? He's like, you know, they, they each have a prophet, and you know, it, 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 if you know anything about Islam and Christianity, you know that there no Muslim or no Christian would would accept something like that. But I was. You know twelve or thirteen and and foolish um, i I became a Christian later. I became a Christian when I was about fifteen um, and I actually had to leave my church to become a Christian in a way. I got invited to participate in a in a a parachurch ministry called young life and i 'll make the story short as I was working through young life uh, a a a speaker told us that. He, he tried to put the message of the bible the the good news that is the gospel in, in context. He put it in order he 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 put a framework around the story so that I understood how all the stories fit together and what they all meant and 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 showed me that I was a sinner, which I believed because i I knew enough about christianity I, I immediately believed that was true I, yeah definitely i'm a, 'm I'm a sinner and, and Okay, I see what you're saying in Scripture. Uh, you know, sinners go to hell. You know, that, that's kind of the equation. The wages of sin is death, and all are sinners. Um, and I was convicted by that. And I, I knew that. I just absolutely knew that was true. I, I was absolutely convinced that that was true. But that was, that's kind of a scary thought. If we're all sinners, and, and all sinners go to hell, wow, that puts me in a really bad place. But he said there was nothing you can do about that. And I was convicted that that was probably true as well. Um, and he continued to share that while there's nothing that we can do about it, of course there's something that Jesus Christ has done about it. God has done something in Jesus Christ. So that when we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us in that Christ died for us. So that by placing our faith, and trust in jesus christ and his work on the cross as a substitution for the penalty that we rightly deserve that we can be rescued now this set in motion some some things um, which were for my good but not all of them i'm i i'm proud of I, I wish things could have been different but they are my story they are the way that god was chastising me the way that god, that god was disciplining me to make me like his son but one of the difficulties I faced right away is, um, you know, church is supposed to be the place where you learn about Jesus Christ and God. And, and I had never heard this good news in 15 and a half years at my church. And I was a little furious. I was a little upset. And that was my only experience with the church, so I thought that's what all churches were like, and so I just hated churches. And so an upshot of that is I didn't have a lot of Christian fellowship outside of this, this para-church organization. And I made a, uh, a bad decision, maybe a bad decision, maybe it was a good decision my, my senior year. Uh, they changed some dates of things that I was really big in, a youth orchestra I was a part of, and it was going to meet the same time as this Christian ministry, and so I chose the youth orchestra because, you know, I was going to be a musician. Um, and uh, I wasn't, but, um, but I was pretty good back in the day. Uh, And so I was kind of cut off from that fellowship. And I went, uh, I I wasn't really going to be a musician. I was going to be an engineer. So I went to the University of Illinois and uh, was in the mechanical engineering department. And uh, I had very few friends at that point. Uh, Anything that I considered friends, because most of my friends um, that I knew before I became a Christian, uh, they were still good friends, but they weren't Christians, mostly. And, And so I never felt like they, they, the, the more mature I got in Christ, which still wasn't very mature, but the more mature I got in Christ, the more I felt like they didn't understand me. They didn't understand where I was coming from. They, and, and so there was this, on this deep level where we once clicked, we didn't click the same way. And so I had very few friends that I could really rely on. And then I went to the University of Illinois. And, and you know, University of, of Illinois in the in the late 90s was still, I mean it's a Big Ten school, Big Ten schools, Midwestern, you know, they're still, they're still relatively socially conservative, you know, in terms of uh, uh, what you, what you think of in higher education, um, and this is still the late 90s, so it's not the, uh, you know, 2017s, this is, you know, 20 years ago now, which makes me feel really old, um, but there's definitely some, some tension, being a, being a sold-out Jesus lover was definitely still not the pervasive ideology on campus and that made some things difficult. My, my first day uh, I, I got into my dorm room and I realized my, my roommate had a, a cartoon taped to his PC monitor that, that seemed to suggest maybe he was gay um, and it turns out he was. He never told me that which made it really awkward because it became more and more clear that he said everything but the fact that he was gay, um, and so it was like this giant elephant in this very tiny dorm room for nine months. Um, but that wasn 't so bad. Uh, we actually got along really well because we had very similar personalities in a lot of ways, um, but there was definitely some tension there was definitely some mutual suspicion uh, you know he, he had kind of grabbed this ideology that all you know all Christians hate me, you know and, and growing up in a you know, conservative Midwestern town, you know, nobody, nobody came out. This was like when people were just starting to talk about coming out. Like, I didn't know a single person in my high school who was out. Um, There was rumors about a couple people, but no one came out. Um, And so there's this this mutual suspicion that adds some tension. And then, of course, there's events going on. Like, you know, I'll hear guys in the hallway, including my RA, joking about how Christians are idiots you know, and and they're not talking to me, but they're talking within, you know, earshot of my room because the RA is next door. Um and and, and so I, I'm starting to feel this 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 tension, but how do I how do I live this out? Um I went through a a a really bad breakup that year, um and, and that forced me into this very selfish self-centeredness, this woe is me mentality. Um, Everything is wrong with my life, uh, which made me much worse at being empathetic and and being caring toward other people. And so it was a very dark and and cold time. And uh, eventually my roommate and I, who, well, we generally had similar personalities, we had some very different interests. And uh, some of those interests eventually turned into annoyances uh, to the point where I think over things like his love of Japanese animation and his enjoyment of listening to the same Japanese song on repeat for hours on end were enough to drive me absolutely insane. And this was kind of a dark point in my, my spiritual life. And um, I, I, there were some real blessings during this time. I found some, some good Christians who pushed me and, and, and challenged me to grow in my faith. I learned some hard lessons that year, but I certainly could have used a little bit more wisdom at the outset, and how to deal with some of these situations that I was going to encounter, how to be uh, honoring to Jesus Christ in the face of people who certainly at times didn't want to honor me, um, And what this passage we're looking at this morning teaches us is th- that God supplies our needs through our single-minded devotion, especially our need of wisdom. And we're going to unpack this idea by, by examining the what and how of prayer as, as James discusses it. So we're going to look at what we're to pray for and how we're to pray. And so, we're going we're gonna to take a look at James as we continue in this series on the book of James. And we're in, as Travis read for us, verses 5 through 8 this morning. The paragraph begins, if any of you lacks wisdom. And we can immediately see that James is developing this idea from lack. Last week, we, we, we talked about verses 1 through 4. And uh, James has talked about um, th- this idea that life's challenges are crafted to make you more like christ and james talks about trials in that first paragraph and, and how they lead to steadfastness and how that leads to completeness and maturity in christ so that we're lacking nothing and so you, we see this 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 link here between these two paragraphs of this idea of lack but if anyone lacks wisdom and then james goes on and, and so it's a connection between these two passages, and, and, and that's important because James is a book, and you guys maybe have felt it as you've read through it. I think you'll see it as we go through it as a church. It's a book that feels like sometimes it's jumping around from topic to topic. And, and you're not alone, like really top-notch biblical scholars for years have tried. What, what is what is the organization? What is the outline of James's thought And and a lot of them have just thrown their hands in the air and and actually said, "Eh, there just is none. And that's probably true to some degree. There's not a concrete outline to the book of James. It's definitely less tightly organized than a Romans or an Ephesians or a a book like that. But throughout the book are sprinkled these little connections, these little literary connections, um, like the back-and-back use of the word lack here that suggests that there is a train of thought, a thread that is being woven throughout the book. So, what is it? Um, what is this link between behind? Uh, if we gain steadfastness through our trials, so that we become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, what it, what is the connection here between wisdom and these trials? Well, in a number of ancient Jewish writings, the idea of trials and wisdom were linked, sort of like my experience as a freshman in college. Uh, There was a sense that trials and temptations in life could only be successfully navigated if one had wisdom. So James' Jewish Christian readers, that's who he's writing to, were probably generally familiar with this way of thinking about trials. And so when James says, Consider it all joy, my brothers. Consider it pure joy when you face trials, because these trials will make you mature and lacking nothing and being like your Savior, Jesus Christ. A faithful believer reading this might say, yeah, James, but what if the one thing I lack is wisdom? might feel a bit like the old frustrating situation where the young graduate seeks to to gain experience in her field, but upon applying for a job, she's told she needs more experience. Or like standing there trying to light a fire without a match. If you only had fire, you would have the fire you need to light the fire. But lacking fire, there can be no fire. And you can imagine why this was so hard for the caveman. But James doesn't leave his readers so hopeless. So there's actually a mild but to start the passage, and a lot of versions don't. Add that, in, they leave it untranslated because it's a Greek has like a heavy but and like a light but, and sometimes it's just more fluid to to leave it out. Uh, but I think here it would be helpful if we put in but if you lack wisdom, it's like James was acknowledging this this problem. Okay, so if, what if the thing that you lack, guys, is the wisdom? You need to undergo those trials. No problem, James says. You'll be complete lacking nothing but if any of you let lack wisdom let him ask god who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him so that's that's our starting point that's the what we pray for james is saying that to endure these trials the thing that we we need to pray for is wisdom that's our that's our what ask god for wisdom And the reason we need to pray for wisdom is because we want to endure the trials and we want to endure the temptations and become like our Lord Jesus Christ. And the the good news is that God has wisdom and he's quite able and quite ready to dish it out. James uses two words to describe God's giving nature. And this is important. There's a key to understanding the rest of this passage says God gives generously to all without reproach he uses generously and without reproach that's how God gives God gives generously and without reproach and, and as I started looking into this and I, and I first looked at the passage I realized I don't have a real good sense of what reproach is outside of you know we use it like in this one stock phrase if you're above reproach I know I know what that means but but when you start throwing reproach in other contexts, it just sounds weird because we don't talk that way. And I thought to myself, you know, I better get a real good idea what reproach is, especially what, it, what is the biblical authors, what do they mean by reproach? And so I started digging in a little bit more deeply, and I realized, um, well, that's an interesting concept. The more I dug in, I realized the really interesting word here is generously. It's a really rare word, actually, in ancient Greek uh, not in English, obviously. And it's not easy to get the bottom of what it is. And when I ask what's going on here, uh, it, it strikes me as a weird thing to say that God gives wisdom generously. Maybe, maybe it doesn't seem weird to you, but it seems weird to me. I mean, if, if I wanted ice cream from God and, and I said that God gives ice cream generously, I understand what that means. It means I'm getting a big scoop, Right? But wisdom is an ice cream. It's it's not like I want a really big scoop but not too much. Wisdom is kind of one of those things that when I need it, I need the full amount for that situation. There's no bigger scoop left while you leave some in the the tub of the freezer. I need, if I need wisdom, I need the tub of wisdom. So what, what does it mean that God gives wisdom generously? Sorry, there's just mysterious words being typed on my my screen. I think the keyboard over there was was pushed. It was very confusing. Um, <laughs> now I lost my place. Um, I, I need the whole tub, though. I don't need a bigger scoop. So what what is it that we're we're, we're dealing with here? Well, the roots of the word actually point to simplicity and sincerity. And you can kind of see how that idea might merge into purity and then there may be generosity. But the emphasis is much more likely to be on the, the single-mindedness of the action. When God gives, and this goes beyond wisdom, I think we can say this for anything, When God gives anything, he gives with a sort of single-minded commitment to the act. It's unreserved. It's unmitigated. There's no looking back and there's no second-guessing. He doesn't half-heartedly give. He gives with a fervent intent. The word doesn't point to the amount of the gift generously. It points to the commitment To the gift. The absolute and pure commitment. In Numbers 23.19. The typically false prophet. Balaam. Is compelled to prophesy about. Israel's God Yahweh. And he says. God is not a man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said. And will he not do it. Or has he spoken. And will he not fulfill it. That is God's character when he purposes to give. Now let's come back to that reproach word. Reproach is basically speaking or thinking ill of someone. It's criticism or fault. Peter Davids, a, a biblical scholar, uh, notes that in the Old Testament, reproach is the basic posture between man and God. Between sinful man and God, I should specify. Because those who are apart from God and do not know him find fault with his ways. They find fault with his nature. They find fault with his character. They reject his laws. They reject his principles. They reject his plan. And so in response, God finds fault with them. There is a status quo of reproach. Have you ever Asked for something, or let me phrase that differently. Have you ever not asked for something that you needed? Because you were afraid of the response you'd get. Maybe it was some new application at work that the boss or your coworkers assumed you knew how to use, and you were a little timid to admit that you had no idea how to use it, and so you resisted asking for help with it. Or as simple as you went to take a test and you forgot the pencil. And you don't want to be that one guy who has to ask the instructor for a pencil and look like a fool. You desperately needed some help, but you were concerned you'd fall under your coworkers or your bosses or your instructors' reproach. But not so with God. Not with the children of God, at least, who desperately need his wisdom. Our Heavenly Father loves his children so dearly that he will not find fault with you or criticize you for asking for wisdom or asking for anything that you truly need. He he won't look at you as, as, man, I can't believe you have that lack of wisdom. I cannot believe you're so Foolish. God loves for his children. To acknowledge. Their need before him. As as any good father. Loves his children to acknowledge him. Our father in heaven. Loves for us to acknowledge him. And, And so sometimes maybe we fear to go before God. Maybe because. We feel the weight of our weakness or feel the weight of our sinfulness. But we shouldn't. Not if we're followers of Jesus Christ. Because if we're followers of Jesus Christ, God beckons his people in and he gives them all they need. So what trials are you enduring? What, what trials come up? And we're, we're tempted to go to God in the big trials, Right? when when all is lost and I I cannot push anymore on my own, then we're tempted to go to God. But I think sometimes we don't know our own limitations. That's why it's really in all life's troubles that we should enter with a posture that says, I'm going to God. I'm seeking wisdom needed to endure, no matter how difficult it gets, and I'm going to rely on him for this strength. And James says that God will supply it. Without finding fault, without holding us in reproach, and with a single-minded intensity designed to bring us to be like him. That's what, James says, we are praying for. That's the what of our prayers. But there's a but. James has a a big but for us in verse 6. And that concerns how we pray. So we looked at what we pray for now, we need to look at how James should we pray. And, and, and really simply, on the surface, we should pray with faith, and we should not pray with doubt. So there's sort of a, a positive, how we pray, with faith, and a negative, how we pray without doubt. And James here is echoing his master. In Matthew chapter 22, as as Jesus' early ministry was coming to a close, he made a final trip to Jerusalem and passing by a fig tree that didn't have fruit on it, Jesus cursed the tree, it withers up, it dies. And his disciples are marveling at this. It's sort of a, a living parable for his followers about the necessity of our lives bearing fruit and that a life that doesn't really bear fruit for the gospel, for Jesus' sake, is really no life at all. But his disciples are in awe of the fact that the fig tree withered. That's that's what they're focused on. Maybe missed the point a little bit. And so they're asking Jesus how this is done. And Jesus explains, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. you can hear a very strong echo between jesus and james here let's focus on the positive side of this of this how right away um let's talk about this faith aspect of it because it's an amazing statement by jesus and it's an amazing statement by james if we pray if we ask god for something in faith it's ours I know I brought it up last week, but it's relevant again this week, so I have to bring it up again. And no, I'm not talking about the base, baseball and the Chicago Cubs. Um, darn it, I did it again. Um, no, I'm talking about these false prophets, these prosperity preachers, these men and women who, who tell you that if you believe, if you have faith, God will give it to you. I mean, isn't that what Jesus said? Isn't that what James said? No, Don't go doubting now. You've got to believe it. But if you have faith, if you believe it enough, you will receive. You will receive healing. If you have faith and you don't doubt, you will have financial blessing. If you have faith and you don't doubt, you will be relieved of your poverty. If you have faith and you don't doubt, you will be freed from any and every difficult situation in this life. I could go on and on. I'm not going to name names. If you're really, if you're really clueless, right, check out Shylin's track "False Teachers." You just got to replace the S with a dollar sign. Uh, he spits out a nice chain of names. If you're curious, as a young Christian myself, uh, when I was 15, 16, somewhere in there, I didn't have any idea about this, this gospel of prosperity. But I, I took a look at one of these passages. I was in a Bible study. And I came to a natural, logical conclusion. I'm I'm not sure how the conversation got started or or who got it started, but here we were in the Bible study, me and a friend of mine, and we concluded that wow, if we had enough faith, we could fly. And we, we were convinced by this, right? I mean, and, and there really was like a, a simple faith in that, that, you know, the problem here was with me that if I had enough faith, I could fly. Right? And that's what God's saying, you know. And so. I just need more faith. That would be awesome. Well, we had a, a, a Bible study leader who was, had a little bit of wisdom. And she quickly put an end to that. Um, she said, you know, why would God want you to fly? And, and To which I really had no answer. And, and so... Um, that point, I kind of thought she was being a little bit of a Debbie Downer, to be honest with you, like, because we were pretty jazzed about flying, and, and our metaphorical Zeppelin had just been burst, um, but I think she was onto something, and then she could have fleshed it out a little bit more. I mean, that's exactly how the TBN types uh, reason, though, right? It's, it might sound ridiculous to you, but that's how I understood the passage at the time, and and in my young Christian soul, I didn't want to doubt God. If, it, if if God said that, then it must be true, and I'm going to believe that it's true. If I could flesh out what my Bible study teacher was, I think, getting at a little bit, here's where I was mistaken, and here's where the prosperity preachers are mistaken. And even if you don't follow these false prophets, let me suggest, my guess is that you have, on occasion, fallen into the trap of thinking that God will bless you in certain ways if you can muster the faith. This is really a pervasive evil that has crept into the American subconscious, not even just the church. You know, you can can almost find this on Oprah. You know, you can find this in the talk shows. And so, you might not have... Bought into the hard, fast, full-on prosperity gospel. But my guess is from time to time, because it's so deeply steeped in American culture, you have fallen a little bit victim to this way of thinking I have. So listen closely. Faith is the key. Faith is an important concept. But faith must have an object. You must have faith in God... But it must be the God of the Bible. It cannot be a God of your own imagining. It's got to be a real God. Now, that it might seem obvious to you, but just, just be patient with you. Bear with me here. The real God has things that please him. And things that he has purposed to come about. Does it make any sense... To have faith that God will let someone be murdered. Like you just really want somebody dead. And so you believe hard enough that God will make sure that person gets murdered. That's, I mean that's a wicked thought but it doesn't make any sense. Does it make sense to have faith, faith in that God will help you steal from a family member? That if you really just, if you really believe hard enough, God will help you to make that happen. Of course not. That that is absurd. Right? Because God doesn't take delight in murder. God doesn't take delight in stealing. Faith in a God that would allow that is actually non-faith. It's disbelief in the real God. You see, if if, if God wants you to be sick, and and he might have some good reasons for you to be sick, then to have faith that he will make you well isn't faith. It's disbelief. It's unbelief.
1: You are an unbeliever.
0: See, that part, that faith part, it's not... It's not an intense hope. I think that's somehow, sometimes how we look at faith, is a, an intense burning hope. Faith is not an intense burning hope. We, we talk about this a lot here, but faith is, is a two-part thing. It's an intellectual conviction about who God is, and it's a relational commitment to follow Jesus Christ, God with us. Faith is belief, and it's trust. And so if God is telling you to go this way, if you're believing very hard about going the other way, you're not believing in God. God is not under some sort of genie magic to change his entire disposition to go along with what you think is a good idea because you have an inspired hope. That's not who God is. God does not change himself for us. So when you place faith in God, you are actually, if, if you are really placing faith in God, you are surrendering your ideas and your thoughts and your purposes to God's. That's trust. And so it's actually a contradiction. It's, it, it is impossible to place your faith in God For something that God hates. It is impossible for you to place your faith in God. For something God does not want. But what does the psalm say? Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. You catch that? You get what you want. When what you want above all else is God. When your delight is God, you will never fail to get what you want because your heart delights in God and it delights in all of God's ways and in all of God's plans and in all the things that please God, and God gets what he wants. So when your wants become surrendered to God's wants, you will receive. Because you will want the things that he has already purposed. So when James says you've got to have faith. He doesn't mean that you have to have a really intense hope. Or even a stubborn conviction. He means that you've got to be aligned in belief and trust with the God of the universe. You want what he wants and you'll get what you want because you want what he wants and he wants you to want what he wants. Sub point B. The how of praying. Sub point A of the how to pray is is you have to have faith. Sub point B, don't doubt. Which seems like the corollary. You know, it seems like a really fairly obvious flip side, right? On one hand, if you're supposed to believe, obviously on the other hand you would Not want to doubt. Isn't that kind of obvious, James? But as much as with the rest of this passage, uh, the the surface gets a little uh, more complex as we dig below it. But let him ask in faith, James says, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He was a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. The word doubt is not the one I would have expected for doubt. When I think about doubt, I think about Thomas, the disciple of Jesus, one of the twelve, who uh, John records doubted. When he heard that Jesus rose from the dead, he doubted until he saw Jesus with his own eyes. The word there is actually unbeliever. Thomas did not believe until he saw Jesus for himself, and then he believed. But that's not the word here. The word, the word here is typically one that's used for judgment, even discernment. But that kind of morphs a little bit into the category of criticism. A- and the idea here behind this, this
1: doubting is
0: the person whose conscience is conflicted between trusting God and rejecting God. And, and so you can see how that, that, that plays into the rest of the verse. For the one who is conflicted, maybe a good translation would be who wavers. Is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. But that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And there's really the, the emphasis for James about how we pray. The the person of, of faith does not waver. In his or her conviction. I'm not saying they never have any doubt. But again, the word isn't quite doubt. It's not saying you can never have doubts about God. But but through the the difficulties and through the storms of life, you you don't waver. You you plot a true course. You can. The 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 picture here of, of the waves. I, I I love it. And if you can imagine yourself being being tossed, maybe maybe as a if you could imagine yourself a poor swimmer and and being tossed in the lake erie on one of those those choppy days where the the wind and the waves they go one way and then they go the other and and there really isn't any getting back to shore it's just being pushed along and being at the mercy of everything around you that is the kind of unstable in all his ways that that James is talking about you have no course you have no direction you can imagine a person in that situation maybe turning their head and looking squarely at the lighthouse and and saying I have a direction I have a course that is where I'm going And they sound very sure of themselves and they sound very confident in themselves and they seem very responsible among all the other people who are bobbing around in the waves looking every which direction. But the reality is that they're still bobbing in the waves going every which direction. Whether they have their eyes fixed on a point or not, they are unstable. And so the one who wants to receive wisdom... Must not waver. James uses these further qualifications. That kind of man is double-minded. Unstable in all his ways. Do you see, like, James had said in the paragraph we talked about last week, that he is making us to be like him. He wants our character to be like the character of Jesus. Like the character of God himself. And God's character is single-minded devotion to his people and so a double-minded devotion to God is not a match and so if we approach God with sort of double-minded devotion sort of a, a a one foot pursuing Jesus and another foot pursuing the things of this world Well, then we will be swallowed by the seas. We will be swallowed by the waves. I I think of you know the the the, the people that were on the the beach when the tsunami hit in Asia. And and if you moved, if you, if you if you had a single-minded devotion, when you saw that stuff go, yeah, I'm going to get away from here. But if you were double-minded, I'm not sure what to think i'm not sure what i want to do with this this looks really cool i want to hang out here uh, I, and part of me is kind of scared and get away the, you, you wouldn't stand a chance your only hope in that situation would is have a, a single-minded commitment to get a, as far away from that water as possible as quickly as possible and that needs to be our posture toward jesus christ There are no half-hearted followers of Jesus Christ. You're either all in or you're not in, is what James is saying. The one who, who's, who's playing games, who's, who is, you know, one, fit, one foot is committed to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And, and one foot is, con- is concerned with pursuing their career or pursuing their wealth or pursuing their family or pursuing any number of good things or any number of evil things as we might phrase them ahead of what they're pursuing in Jesus Christ is unstable is double-minded and that person should not expect to receive wisdom or James says anything from the Lord This is a posture question. The difference between faith and doubt here is the difference between the single-minded commitment that God has toward us. Do we mirror that back to God who saved us from our sins, who rescued us from our misery, who has guaranteed us an an eternal inheritance in the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ? Are we all in on that or are we wavering? Are we sometimes in... And we're sometimes out. Sometimes that feels like the thing I want to be all about. But other times, you know, Monday comes, Tuesday comes. And the drudgery of the world, that seems more important in the moment. Or is your highest and greatest thought, your greatest pursuit, and your greatest passion, Jesus Christ?
1: That, James says, that, James says, that sort of single-minded devotion will lead to God providing us with all our needs.
0: There's no promise. In fact, I would argue from other passages, there's a a distinct warning to those outside of a single-minded passion to Jesus Christ about what happens when trials and difficulties and hardships come. Funny, the same trials and tribulations and difficulties of this life can be used by God two different ways. On one hand, they can be used to chasten us and sharpen us and make us more like Jesus Christ. And at the same time, those same trials and tribulations when not attended to by faith to harden us and drive us further away from the gospel of his son. But James says to us that God supplies our needs through our single-minded devotion. And so it's precisely when the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties and the hardships of life hit that our commitment to Jesus Christ must grow stronger and burn brighter and we must push in even farther and harder because it is the
1: only way that we will see ourselves through by God's help in those times. Let's
0: pray. Father, we are thankful that you are a good father, that you give good gifts to your children. You see our needs and you give us all of our needs. You ensure that we have what we need to serve you, to live for you, and to glorify you. If only we will pursue you with single-minded devotion. God, may we not be the man that that Jesus, our Savior, warns us about that whoever puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is unfit for the kingdom of heaven. May we not be so double-minded. But may we plow straight rows. And I pray, God, especially for those who might not know you, who might not have such single-minded devotion, who maybe have toyed with faith throughout their lives. Or perhaps they don't even pretend to be double-minded, but their single-minded devotion lies elsewhere. God, I pray that you would grab those hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh beating for you and for your love and your kingdom and your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to uh, celebrate the, the ordinance of, of baptism. We believe in, in two ordinances at, at Gateway Downtown, baptism and communion. Baptism is the entrance rite into the Christian faith. And uh, communion is really our continual celebration fe- feast. Uh, Our continual celebration rite for those who are in the Christian faith. Uh, We believe that Jesus commanded us to baptize disciples. And we see that that was the unanimous practice throughout the early church. And so we likewise uh, baptize disciples. This morning um, we have the the pleasure of having Jameson uh, Lowry. Uh, to be baptized as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jameson and Allison are up for membership in the church today. And uh, it is fitting for the people of God uh, to have performed the entrance rite into the Christian faith. And so um, we are baptizing Jameson as a, a demonstration that he has been crucified with Christ and risen to new life. In Christ. And uh, so, Jameson, if you want to come up here. And Jameson, if you would just uh, briefly uh, tell us about how you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Thank you. Well, uh, Jamison, uh, we will uh, move this over here. We're going to get you wet. Um, I learned the last time that you need to sit on the edge of this uh, because if if you if you don't if you scoot back too far, you may get a concussion by hitting the back of it. Um, as Travis reminded me this morning that may or may not have happened to him. Uh, so you sit here on the the, the edge, and uh, Jamison, do you make uh, a profession of repentance toward God and and faith toward Jesus Christ this morning? And do you promise by God's grace uh, to follow, his, follow him forever in the fellowship of his church? All right. Well, that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, you put your hands on your chest a little easier. Um, I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for for Jameson. Father God, uh, we thank you for Jameson's faith and his love and his desire to pursue you single-mindedly. We pray that you would give him the strength and the wisdom to endure each trial and temptation that does come his way. That he might stand up under it and come out looking more and more like his Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. With that the the worship team is gonna come up, we've got one more more song and then we'll we'll close out.